All right. Um, I'll go ahead and get started. Um, hopefully you've been uh, taking notes and um, keeping up with the lessons and reviewing your notes. And also hopefully you got a chance this week to read uh, through, I believe it was Psalms 95. Um, that was more of a review, kind of recall some of the things we talked about in last week's lesson. Uh, I was taking some time to just um, kind of reflect on where we've come from and we started studying the um, remember we started studying the the life of Jesus Christ way back in in December and we've been moving um, moving right along moving steady um, I teach in a more exegetical type of manner um, versus topical and um, that's for a reason, and that'll be brought out in today's lesson. But the focus really is for us to study a line upon line, precept on precept, here a little, there a little. That's from Isaiah 28, I believe. Um, and that's the way we ought to approach God's word. Um, I pray that these lessons have motivated you or inspired you, or you at least recall them, especially in, um, in our times now and in our current situations and circumstances um, continue to do those things that you have done that has attributed to your success as a christian and as a believer and that's be faithful to the word of god don't get distracted there are many distractions right now um, but don't get distracted you remain faithful to the study of god's word and god is faithful to do just what he says in scripture um, so you can trust and be confident in knowing that God will take care of you and see you through, um, as he always has. He's not restricted to the times. God is greater than the times. So his word remains, regardless of if things change. Uh, so that's just comforting to know. Continue to pray for um, our country. Continue to pray for our world. Continue to pray for believers everywhere. Continue to pray for those that may not have a relationship. Continue to pray for our leaders, our president, our government officials, those that are working um, in the hospitals, those that are working in the retail stores and all the businesses that are up in the restaurants. And just continue to pray that God will continue to see us through. But more so, continue to pray that we'll do our part. And that's be true and faithful to his word. Um, we've approached a unique um, portion of scripture in that we are now studying what many call your Bible may have um, maybe titled the temptation of Christ. But as I'm furthering the study of it and presenting it, it may be more appropriate to call this the testing of Jesus Christ versus the temptation. It is a temptation indeed, but I find that testing is more appropriate for the text. Um, so let's get into the text. This is our second lesson. Remember, this is a three-part series. The first one, we had an opportunity to look at the first four verses of Matthew 4, first four verses of Luke chapter 4, and now we're approaching the second lesson, which is the temptation of Jesus Christ, part 2. And this is coming from Matthew chapter 4, 5 through 7 and Luke chapter four, nine through 12. And remember, you see that jump there because remember I talked about how Luke had the temptation, the order that he has it as opposed to, to Matthew. 
And so we're, we're looking at it more in Matthew's text because that's chronological, um, many believe. However, we will hit all three from those um, uh, passages. Remember, Mark just gives us a synopsis, kind of overview uh, of things. Mark is a, an immediate type of writer. He's about action, so it's bam, 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 bam. Well, Matthew and Luke, John, it tend to open up the text a little more at times. So um, that's why we're focusing on those two there. I want to just recall uh, what we discussed last week somewhat um, by reading through Matthew 4, 1 through 4. I can't, of course, say everything that I said last week, um, but it's recorded. We could always go back. Um, Matthew chapter 4, 1 through 4 says, Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward and hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. That's from the King James Version right there. As we're looking at these temptations, there's a it's very easy to approach these temptations lightly. Like it's easy to just read this text and say, oh, he's tempting him to feed himself. He's tempting him to, you know, you're hungry, eat. And we just stay at that level. However, we have to appreciate the text. What I mean by that is we have to appreciate the fact that we're not speaking of a, a mere demon, a low-level official in Satan's army, a, 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 a random, unclean spirit. We're speaking of Satan himself coming to Jesus. You and I might be fortunate enough. I know some. I know we like to say we've been, um, you know, we're the devil is doing this to me, and I'm fighting the devil. And I get that in 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 what you're saying, but we are lucky if we come face to face with a a fallen angel or demon that has. That reports to another fallen angel or demon. That reports to another fallen angel or demon. That reports to another fallen angel or demon. That reports to Satan. <laughs> we don't want to get confused into thinking that we have went head on with Satan himself, like Jesus did. And that's important for us to understand because he went head up with the top fallen angel, Satan himself. Um, this was more than just a feed yourself, you hungry, eat. This was a designed challenge to the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Satan had to pull out his best ammunition right here. So I don't want us to, so we have to know that there's more in the text. Jesus in the wilderness. He's been tempted of the devil. Um, I believe that he was tempted for the whole 40 days and 40 nights. It's just that we have these three specific temptations recorded. 
but I believe he was attacked on every side. Um, but we, we talked last week about the challenge being to act like God, to move beyond acting like a man to act like God, to be a man. Jesus said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. What he's saying, what Jesus is saying is man is to obey God above his flesh. Man is to obey God above his flesh. And we talked a lot about that last week. It's interesting. Also, just a couple of things to note here just for consideration before we actually get into verse 5. Jesus fasted 40 days. We, we, not, we, we talked last week about that 40 days meaning something that was important. If, you, if you're up on your, your Old Testament, you know that there were two other people that fasted for a period of 40 days. Those being That was my wait time so that you can throw it out there to yourself, you know, or recall it if you're sitting with someone and kind of trying to test them and challenge them to see. Sometimes I like to have the Bible trivia, you know, to kind of challenge yourself. Well, one was Moses. So you go all the way back to Exodus 34. Actually, Exodus 34 verse 28 tells us that, and this was, if you remember, this was a time period when after the tablets were destroyed, you know, because Moses threw them down, he was upset, and so God told him to, to take the tablets and write on that exact same thing that was on there before. <laughs> it's not a new law, all right? Um, write on there the same thing that was on there before, and then he went up to the mountain and says he was there, and he fasted for a period of 40 days, right? If, if, you, if you remember that, and that's Exodus 34, 28. Remember, it was, he was fasting for 40 days as God was with him, revealing to him and telling him what to write on the tablet. So you see, a, you see something there, right? You see a 40-day period connected with the law and connected with where they were, which was in the wilderness, right? Just like Jesus. He's spitting out the law. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's in the wilderness. And then you fast forward to Elijah. If you remember that story, that's 1 Kings 19. If you're keeping up with your one-year Bible, we're not there yet, um, but you'll get there. Um, right now, if you're keeping up with the one-year Bible, you're in David is the king, and um, David is the king, Saul and Jonathan just died, um, so on and so forth. So you're, you're around that area if you're keeping up with one-year Bible. I also do a one-year also do a Bible reading um, with my kids' Bible book. They would have this illustrated children's Bible book. It's awesome. Um, and they just learned how to say Mephibosheth, which is uh, Jonathan's son and David took care of Mephibosheth. Anyway, they like that word. Um, so we have Elijah, who also fasted for four days. If you remember, and this is 1 Kings 19, verse 8. Um, which tells you that. But this is during that period where he was on the run from Jezebel and God came to him and, and, and he ate. And then that food, it says in verse 8, kept him for a period of 40 days. So he went without food for 40 days 
Um, and you can read on that story, that's First Kings uh, 19. So why is that important? Like, why did I say that? Well, Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the complete package. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's why this 40-day fasting period was so significant with him as well as with them. Because Jesus embodied that. This was a divinely purposed fast. God strengthened them. God, God strengthened them to be able to go through the fast. God strengthened them to be able to go through this divine provision, this fasting time period. That's why, you know, Moses, the law, prophets, the transfiguration, all of that, that was so significant right there. All right, so Jesus is in the wilderness. We have our own wilderness experience as well. Um, and so this is important um, for us. In order for us to respond the same way, we must apply the things of God. So Jesus is setting a pattern of what to do. Jesus is full of the Spirit. We're commanded to be full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. There is a physical aspect of temptation that we see here, but there is a spiritual aspect of temptation also. The, the spiritual is superior to the physical. Jesus is showing us in this first temptation not to respond like fallen man who gave in to his flesh and how we give into our flesh, but to respond like perfect man, one that is obedient only to God. I want you to understand that Jesus' temptation was greater than ours. We say, oh, how is this temptation greater than ours? We're tempted from the inside, and Jesus is not tempted by the inside. But there are too many scriptures that tell us how he dealt with things. Um, sometimes when we're, we're in temptations, it, it intensifies until when? It tends to intensify until we typically give in to it, and it's like, ah. And then it kind of like it goes away, you think, right? Well, Jesus never gave into it, so there wasn't this experience. So it continued to intensify with Jesus all the way through. We have to appreciate that because that pressure built up, but he continued to resist, to reject the temptation. Hebrews 5 and 8 says that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. What that means is, it didn't mean that he just started to be obedient when he started suffering. What that means is he trusted and obeyed God in what he went through. And that's what we're called to do. So he quotes from Deuteronomy. Remember, Deuteronomy is not necessarily another law. It's an explanation of the law. The first generation in the wilderness, they failed. He's showing us how we can be successful. I want to go to a passage of scripture here. Um, 
that's that's important because Jesus is unique, and we have to we have to come back to this. From Deuteronomy 18, I this is interesting for a couple of reasons. This is embedded in the temptation that we're seeing. So Jesus is speaking. So so Moses is speaking. Um, Moses will speak to the people, but God is speaking to Moses, and this is in Deuteronomy 18, and it says, The Lord thy God will raise up, and this is prophecy of Jesus Christ to come. Um, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken, according to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God, and forth in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire anymore, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, they have spoken well, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee, and will put my word in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Two things you can probably highlight there that you notice. Um, Jesus would be this prophet, and that's why they all begin to question Jesus. They say, are you the prophet? You want to know supposed to come. So this is Jesus. But this is twofold because he says, he'll raise up a prophet like unto me. This is God saying he will be like me. But then down here he says, I'll raise up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee. Right? So he said, he'll be like me and like you. All right? He'll be like God, he'll be like man. All right? So this is what we're seeing with Jesus Christ. That's why you see some of the temptation will start to shift there. But Satan understands that Jesus is God. And that was a, a lot of what the first temptation was about. Jesus was baptized, so he was he was identified with us. There's two things that happened prior to Jesus moving into his teaching ministry, all right, into his teaching ministry. So he was first, he first baptized, and in his baptism, Jesus was saying, I am the one, right? I'm the one. I'm, I'm, I'm the one that was to come. I'm the Messiah. I am coming to identify with man. And the second thing that has to happen before he starts teaching is this temptation that we're reading right now, because he's showing now that I'm the one. He said I'm the one in the baptism, and he's showing now that I'm the one that is to go through everything to be that righteous substitute. All right? So that takes us into our passage for today. Uh, I'm going to read it from the Matthew side. I'm going to read verse 5 through 7. It says, Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. I have the King James text there, so you know it's a lot of the that kind of take it and set it and you know those type thou. And, and I'm reading for the King James version in this lesson for a reason, so that we get the quotation just right um, and don't mix it up with translation because the word is important in the lesson. So remember, I read from the Matthew side because Matthew and Luke 
kind of mix it up a little bit, but I'll put them side by side so that we can get the whole uh, picture as best we can. The holy city that Matthew refers to is Jerusalem. They knew that when the writer was writing it, but I want to make sure that we know it now. So that's why I have a Luke passage there. So Luke actually just tells you straight up, Jerusalem. All right? Um, this is important for us to understand that this wasn't just a mere temptation. This Satan specifically chose the place to take Jesus for this temptation. And he took him to the holy city. All right? This place was significant. If you go all the way back to like 1000 BC or so, we go all the way back to David. David entered into this city. Um, yeah, the King James, the, the Bible might say Jebus, J-E-B-U-S. And it says, it might say parentheses, that is Jerusalem. Now this is First Chronicles 11, chapter four through five. Again, that's First Chronicles chapter 11, four through five. And it basically is the text that shows David went to the city and conquered the city and overtook the city, all right? He built, he fortified the city, he built it, he made it his capital city. And then First Kings chapter two, verse 11, again, that's First Kings chapter two, verse 11, tells us that David reigned there. So I think seven years and, and, and several or so, uh, in Israel, and 33 years the rest. So he did a whole 40-year period where he reigned. 40 again, you see that. But he reigned right here in the Holy City. That's why we call it the City of David. All right? So we call it City of David because that was his headquarters there. That's significant. They had religious significance. They had religious significance. So then, not only did he take him to the Holy City, but it said that he took him up on a pinnacle of the temple. So, you know, the temple went through some phases. You remember the temple was destroyed and it was rebuilt, hair and that whole thing. Well, the pinnacle of the temple was the sloped type of wall that lay, that, that lay on like the southeast corner that lay above, that rose way above the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley was probably like 400 and some believe it was like 450 feet below. And so he took them way up to this elevated walled area where he could see way high above it of the temple complex type of area. And this is according to Jewish historian Josephus and some others. So this is the, the setting of where he took him. Lifted him up. And he said unto him, so let's get into the actual temptation here. This was the passage I read to you, or that I referred to here, First Chronicles 11, 4 through 9. That I won't read it again, but that was that text. And then this was the one from First Kings 2, uh, verse 11. It says, seven years he reigned in heaven and 33 he reigned in Jerusalem. And then they made him king over one area and then they made him king over the whole thing. Right there. Um, all right. So he said unto him, if thou be the son of God, we had that phrase there, if, or you can translate it since, remember, Cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time they dash their foot against the stone. So, this is interesting right here. We have to we have to take a moment and break down this temptation so that we don't diminish the 
the value, I guess, of it. Satan was pulling out everything he had. See, Jesus responded and said in the last temptation that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. So Jesus, um, Jesus said to, to Satan said to Jesus, okay, he thinks to say, okay, he's quoting scripture. I quote scripture. All right. He believes in obeying or submitting himself under the authority of God. Then I have to incorporate all of these things in his next temptation. All right. So he says, if thou be the, or since you're the son of God, or since you're, will, since you're surrendering to God or obey God and you have put the scripture first, we got to bring the scripture first. So he is trying to tempt, test Jesus with the scripture, with the Bible. I, I, I dare say that Satan probably has the Bible memorized. We know people that have the Bible memorized, so you, you have to know Satan has the Bible memorized, and he's it's probably easy to remember it because Satan has been around through all the different time periods, and he has seen the scripture form, and so on. So I, I dare say he has the Bible memorized, so he says, I'm going to use that here. He changed his strategy, which was interesting here. And he says, if or since thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. So remember, he way up, elevated high, and he's telling him to jump. Now, you might say, okay, you read this and you say, okay, he's just telling Jesus to kill himself. No, 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 no. He says, for it is written, all right, like Jesus said, he said, for it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against the stone. If you note, Jesus never says, at the very end of this, you kind of look ahead, Jesus never says, that's not what the Bible says. Because that is what the Bible says. He quotes it. However, and this is a, a straight quotation taken from Psalm 91. Alright, so this is this is this is straight up. I want to show you the passage. This is Psalm 91, 11 through 12. It says, but he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, many scholars and theologians go as far as to say, well, he quoted it wrong. He misquoted it, all right? Because if you go back, you see where it says, it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee. And in their hands, so he, he leaves out a part here. So he doesn't quote this part here that says to keep me in all our ways. So many go as far as to say, well, he misquoted it. But if you go further in the text, Jesus never says, you, you didn't say it right, right? Whether Satan chose to omit that part or not. Um, and also, the, the, the there are translations of the Old Testament that don't have this part in there at, at all. So we won't spend time focusing on that. However, what he did do is take the scripture out of context, which is what believers do and unbelievers do. And many times we do. We try to grab hold to a scripture and apply it in the wrong context, misappropriate it. 
right? So we take a promise that was written and we don't understand the context of the promise. We just remember what that verse said and we try to apply it to our situation and circumstance. That is acting like the devil. That's acting like Satan because this is exactly what Satan did in the text. Let me say a few things about that. And we got to go back to the passage. Let me give you the whole the context of Psalm 91. Psalm 91 is a, is a beautiful psalm written about safety and security for the one who is faithful to God. Psalm 91 is about safety and security for the one who is faithful to God. I like to I like to read just a portion of it because I really like the, the song. I like the way it begins, and you probably know it. That's why I want to read the part of it. It says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. You know that. You probably have that memorized. That says that he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, of the, Most High the one that remains in the arm of God, in the hands of God, in God's will, shall be taken care of. That's what Psalm 91 is all about. That's why it says to keep thee in all our ways. You don't have to worry if God's going to hold up his in you. If you. The issue is will we hold up our end? The issue is us. We're the problem. We don't remain in God's will. We don't remain faithful to God. That's why we worry sometimes if God will take care of us. You even have a situation that we're in right now. There are believers everywhere that are afraid right now because of the times that we're in. Instead, we should not be afraid. We should trust in God. We should be faithful to God. God will take care of us. That's what the scripture says. That's what Psalm 91 is all about. It's a beautiful psalm. Please read it this week. So he says, he's faithful to the one. God will do his part. He's just calling for us to be faithful to him. That's really what the psalm is all about. It's about deliverance based on us following the will of God. But that's really deliverance based on how God sees fit. And that, that can fall in a lot of different things. But the passage is about trusting in God, not testing God. It's about trusting in God. It's not about testing God. That's why Jesus makes the statement. The passage in its context is about trusting in God and we trust God by obeying God. We trust God by obeying his word. That's what Jesus has been talking about. Satan was tempting Jesus to act a certain way. And let me just kind of talk about it just briefly before I go to the very end. The whole Satan's big objective with Jesus Christ was to prevent him from going to the cross. Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross. That's why Jesus came to go to the cross. That's why he would 
throughout the gospel, you'll see that, that Satan would incite the religious leaders to stone Jesus. They want, he wanted the religious leaders to stone Jesus instead of Jesus going to the cross. But God didn't allow it. Jesus was obedient. And the purpose was for him to go to the cross. That's why he would say, time, time, him, it's not, it's not my time. It's not my time. This is another passage of scripture where it says it's not his time. But there's even more than that. What he wanted Jesus to do was, okay, Jesus had already made it clear that he's going to surrender to the will of God and he's going to use scripture. So Jesus, so Satan used scripture. But he also wanted, so there was a twist to this. He said, okay, he's going to give himself into God. Therefore, okay, why don't you jump off this thing? And, and if you really, if you trust God, and you believe that he'll take care of you, jump. Satan was telling Jesus to test God's love for him. Let me just be clear. God loves us already. There's nothing that we could do where God would have to prove himself even more. God loves us. We have to believe that. He wanted Jesus to do two things. He wanted Jesus to prove that he believed in the word or in the scripture as a way to test God for God to prove that he loved Jesus. Jesus already knew that God loved him. And Jesus shows that he loves God by obeying what God says and remaining in God's will. It wasn't God's will for Jesus to jump. It was God's will for Jesus to go to the cross. Another thing inside of this temptation was glorification. See, again, Satan wanted Jesus to, Satan was tempting Jesus to have the crown of glory before the crown of the cross. Like we talked about that before. He's saying, glorify yourself. See, this would have been a, uh, an act of splendor if Satan would have jumped down in front of all the people and the angels would have came and caught him. This would have been spectacular. This would have been contrary to God's will. See, the spectacular thing was for Jesus to be perfect and go to the cross. That's spectacular. It's spectacular that someone who is sinless would die in the place of me. That's spectacular. That someone would love me enough to resist Satan, to obey God's plan, to suffer the way he did, and die for me who don't deserve it. Now that's spectacular. And that was the will of God, and that's what Jesus will do. And Jesus responds to that, and he says, at the end, and it's in bold right here, it says, Jesus said unto him, it is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now, I want to make something real clear right here. I already said that Satan knows scripture. You know, many people that quote scripture out of context and, and do all kinds of egregious things with the scripture. We, we're not necessarily talking about that, but it's important to know context. Context is everything. Jesus is not saying to him, on the contrary, thou shalt not tempt the Lord our God. Jesus is not, that would make it appear that this scripture and that scripture are contrary to each other. And that is not true. We are, we have all, the word of God is one. 
The scripture is not contrary to one another. The scriptures are complementary to one another. They go together. This is to help break up the, the long dispute between uh, that many people think was between Paul and James, where, where Paul said that you're saved by faith and, and James said that it's your works. That, that's not contrary scriptures. That's complementary. You just have to understand it in the context of what it was written. So he's saying, Jesus is saying to him, let me complement the scripture that you quoted. And so he says, it is also written on top of that. In addition to that, however you want to word that, but it's not contrary. He says, it also says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So he says, let me clarify that passage. You took it out of context. Let me give you the context. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Let me give you the context because Satan, that's what Satan, see, there's a couple of things we have to know about Satan. He's not omniscient or omnipresent. He only knows what he sees. Like, he cannot know the scripture the way you and I can know the scripture because we have the Holy Spirit that reveals to us as the teacher. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit living inside of him. He is a fallen being destined to the lake of fire. So that's why Jesus said, I came to fulfill it. I, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I can explain it to you in its with the correct interpretation. All Satan can do is take the scripture out of context. But he's clever and deceitful with that. Jesus says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Here is the context of what he was saying. Now, it's quoted from Deuteronomy 6. I told you that all Jesus quotes come from the law. This is Deuteronomy 6 and 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as he tempted him in Massa. My, my Bible readers, my Old Testament Bible lovers know exactly the passage that I'm referring to when this says Massa. However, I'm not going to make the assumption that everybody knows the passage. I'm going to refer to the passage, and this is Exodus 17. Exodus 17. I'll just read it. I like to read it. Like, no, don't read it. It's seven verses. I'll read it anyway. Uh, <laughs> Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted them for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have ye brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you will strike the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Or at Or, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people that the people may drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? So Jesus quotes this passage 
but I'm amazed at how he chooses what to quote. We might look at them and say, okay, I get it. You know, they tested the people. They tested God. He's saying don't test them. Oh, okay, I get it. In order to really get it, you got to go back to Exodus 16. Exodus 16, God had just delivered the people from hunger, and they acted the exact same way. They went to a place, they were hungry, there was no food, they grumbled, they complained, and God miraculously gave them manna from him. You flip, you flip your Bible one page over to chapter 17, and they do the exact same thing, and that's put God to the test. The test was that they were saying, provide for me, God, if you love me. God had already provided for them manna from heaven. God had already sent them from heaven the provision of their deliverance. Am I, does that sound like Jesus? Right? But they still rejected. They still did not believe. Why did Jesus quote this? Is he just quoting to say don't test God because he remembered that that's what he said in that passage? No. Jesus was saying to Satan, I will not fail as first Adam failed. He has another chance. There's another opportunity for man to get it right. And Jesus saying, I'm going to get it right this time. So he refers to a passage of scripture in the Old Testament where the people failed once and they failed again. <laughs> He's contrasting that by saying, although mankind failed once, I will not fail. That's what he's telling Jesus. That's what he's telling Satan right here. And that is comforting for us to know. That's comforting for us to know. So when we go back to the passage of scripture, he says, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We don't put, we don't make these presumptuous decisions where we say, okay, this is what we'll do. We will put ourselves in a bad situation and ask for God to deliver us if he loves us. That's not obeying God's will. God says, obey me, and I will take care of you. Not put yourself in a harmful situation or move outside of my will and ask for me to come and deliver you. Like, are you serious? How arrogant could we be to say, I'm going to reject you, God, but I still want the same Provision. I still want you to take you. I still want your loving arm protection around me. Then you remain in God's will. You don't step outside of God's will and ask God to take care of you or ask for God's provision. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus was saying it's God's will that I go to the cross. It's God's will that I obey everything that he says. And this would not be God's will. Certainly, he could have jumped and angels could have kept. That wasn't the and Satan knew that that wasn't the point. Satan knew it was to get Jesus to respond contrary to what he was supposed to do. And that's go to that cross and die. Um, as believers, we're called to obey God's will. No matter what. No matter if the situation or circumstance change. The problem is we don't know God's word enough to be able to apply it to our life. So I'm challenging each and every one of you that's listening to me right now, including, including myself, 
we have to continue to study, grow, and learn more about what God's Word said so that we can apply it to our situations and circumstances. If we don't do that, we're going to take God's Word out of context and, and respond just like, just like Satan did. Um, I want to um, I'm going to leave this up. I want to close um, with a, a word of prayer um, here. We'll move into our third temptation next week, um, and then we will have a um, I teach a Mother's Day lesson. Can you believe Mother's Day is coming up two Sundays from now? <laughs> um, so I'll teach a special Mother's Day lesson, and then we'll continue to, to move into um, those things that we, we have studied as we continue to follow the chronology of, of Jesus Christ. Um, so if you could uh, bow with me um, for a word of prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come just thanking you for this time. We thank you for trusting us. We thank you for loving us. Um, we thank you for keeping us. We thank you for the word this morning. We thank you for all that you've just done for us. We thank you for how you continue to provide for us and give us everything that we need to be able to carry out our purpose. We ask that you continue to be with our church, continue to be with our church family, continue to be with our leaders, continue to be with um, just everyone that's, that's trying to make the right decision right now. Um, we ask that you just protect this people and help us to remember someone else so that we get off our prayers. Help us to not be selfish, um, but to share God's word with others. Um, we just thank you for this time of study. It's in your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I'll leave um, that up. I hope that each and every one of you have a great week. I'm going to stop the screen now. I hope that each.